Welcome to the Wake the F Up podcast with Alex and Jamie, where we talk about living consciously and helping people uncover their essential self so they can stop sleepwalking through life. On this podcast, we're having raw conversations about difficult topics. Our goal is to create a safe space where our guests can talk about real problems and issues and how they decided to wake the F up and become mindfulness experts through their own emotional healing journey. Welcome to Wake the F Up Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Long. My co-host, Jamie, is taking a little break from podcasting right now, so I'm holding down the fort, and I'm so excited to welcome today's guest, Vera Hendricks-Tuggle. Vera and I have walked the grief path similarly. We are both widows, which is similar, but also have very different journeys. Vera's husband, Ty, passed away last year from incurable brain cancer called GBM at the age of 40, while Vera was just six months pregnant with their second child. Uh, Varen is a breast surgical oncologist at Lakeshore Surgical Center, and it's a Mary Bird Perkins affiliate. So welcome today to the show. Vera, I'm so excited to have you. Um, your story is so powerful. You're still in the midst of the early days of the grieving process with a brand new baby. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and familiarize the listeners with your story? Yes, definitely. So um, hi, everybody. I'm originally from New York City. Um, and I went to medical school in DC and then I did residency here in New Orleans. Um, and so that's how I'm here now. Um, let's see. And that's how I met Ty. He was also a, um, healthcare provider here in New Orleans. Um, and we met a little bit after COVID had just, the peak COVID had just ended. So in the summer of 2020. Um, and he was a couple of years older than me. So he at this point wasn't attending and I was a, a resident, but we weren't in the same department. So it was all kosher. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Cause we know that, that can be a common thing that happens. I think those work environments are really like yes. so submersive. Uh, it's funny that people always say like, oh, all these relationships spring up in residency and fellowship. But I'm like, you're just so submersed. If you, you weren't dating anyone else, it's, it is a common place to like meet your future person. Yes, he's actually the first person that I ever dated that was medical. Nobody else I ever was with was medical, which was interesting. And it was the most perfect um, joining, I guess you could say. So did so I did you have to him. rotate under him when you were um, in your residency? No, no, actually, we didn't. He So he worked in plastic surgery and I was general surgery. So we never crossed paths and he was at LSU and I was at Tulane. So we weren't in the same department. The first time we ever met was actually in pre-op, which is kind of the area where you go prep your patients, which you know, because you, mm -hmm. you did nursing. Um, so we met in pre-op, uh, I think maybe a couple of months before we actually first went on our first date. Oh, that's so sweet. Actually, my parents, um, both in the medical world, met in, in, in an operating room as well. So that's a, kind of a, a sweet little place to meet. And um, what did you do? I didn't know So that. my dad was, or is, it's retired now, but uh, he was an OBGYN infertility specialist. So he did a lot of endocrinology and, um, you know, a lot of surgery. Back then, I feel like OBs were, you know, just doing tons and tons of surgery. So, um, and then my mom right. worked in the ICU, but they actually went in an operating room at, uh, when he was in residency at St. Louis University um, in a heart patient. So my mom was um, in ICU and she did uh, cardiac cath and then a lot of like cardiac surgeries. 
Was she a nurse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she, she's an ICU nurse. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yes, yeah. So that's great. It's a sweet little story. So tell me a little bit about Ty and like just your relationship um, with him and, and, and where you are today and like what's been going on. Yes. So when we first met, like I said, it was the summer of COVID. So July, it was actually July 4th. Um, Cause I remember he was on call cause he was a hand surgeon. And so he was on a lot of a hand trauma call and fireworks. Naturally you have a lot of accidents and incidents. So he was on call. Um, but we actually went to the fly for our first date, oh. which is for local people. It's in Audubon park. And, um, we just had a little bit of like rosé and just chatted at the park. Um, and then I remember he got a, a call for a consult. And so he had to go to the hospital um, later that day. And I was like, oh, it'd be so wonderful. Like, you know, just smitten and all of that. Um, and then we went on a second and third date, like very quickly after. And then we were just basically inseparable since then. Um And then I was in my chief year of residency. So I had to rotate in Alexandria actually for three months. So it was very much like we met each other. Then I had to go away for three months. Wait, were you in Alexandria, Um, Louisiana? I came back only on the weekends. And then I think six months into dating, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma. Mm. It was December of 2020. So he was diagnosed when you guys were dating. Yeah, which was challenging. Yeah. So he had just turned 38 in October. Okay. So tell us a little bit about like, maybe obviously this is weird, right? So at this time you, had you already picked your specialty? Had you already decided to go into surgical oncology? Yeah. So you were, you were, yes. So that's kind of work. Yes. So we decide, so breast surgery is a fourth year match. So I had already interviewed um, in my fourth year of residency. And then this, when this all happened, I was in my fifth year, which is your chief and final year of residency. And so I had just found out that I had matched in California, um, in, I think it was like in October, everything was delayed because of COVID. So my interview season was half in person and then half um, via zoom. And so I did that all of before I even met Ty and kind of through part of meeting Ty. Um, and then I found out where I was going to match in October. Um, then did you guys stay long distance in the, when you went to California? Gosh. Yeah. So this past year, right before I came back, I was actually in California. So around the time of his recurrence, which was last summer in July, I had just, was just finishing fellowship basically. And I was pregnant. So I was pregnant in June. I graduated fellowship end of July. His recurrence happened beginning of July. And so I couldn't fly because I was finishing fellowship and then I was pregnant. And then he couldn't fly because he was just very nauseous and vomiting and not feeling well and just sick from the recurrence. Oh my gosh. So we were apart for basically two months and hadn't seen each other. And that was the longest time in our entire relationship. That's incredibly challenging. I don't think I realized that all of this took place while you were in your fellowship. I'm like, that's so challenging. So you guys got engaged pretty quickly, I'm assuming. Yeah. So we actually did like a COVID wedding. (laughs) We basically eloped at um, Jefferson Parish Courthouse um, on Friday, December 3rd. 
Yeah. And, uh, and actually we had to do it that day because I was in fellowship in California and he was here and the courthouses are only open during the week, nine to five. And so I, we could only see each other on the weekend since we were in different States. So I actually came down for an interview, a job interview, and it was on that Friday. And so I flew in Thursday night and we did it the fr- the morning of Friday before I went for my interview. So I have a photo and I'm wearing a suit and he's wearing scrubs. And I, I titled like the little um, postcard um, uh, uh, scrubs and suits and holy matrimony or something. Cause it was just so funny. Oh my God. I love this. And just typical. It is typical. And I think it's really cool on the podcast actually, you know, like uh, to talk about medical school residency fellowship. It's such a, it's such a unicorn of a journey. And I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of healing and wellness at that time, like what people's families go through to put themselves through medical school, like all the sacrifices, all the the malleation that you have to do just to, you know, when you get matched and go to these places, you're really at the liberty. Like you want to go where you want to go. Of course, these high level places where you're going to get the most experience, but it really can be t- challenging when you're in a love you know, your love life or you're in a partnership or, or marriage with children, it's really, really challenging. So, um, how that must've been so hard, huh? Yeah. Especially with, and it actually, when he got the glioblastoma, really how, hard. how challenging was that? Were you guys together at that time in the same city? Yeah. Yes. We were still together. Um, so it was six months after we started dating and then six months before I had to go for fellowship which started August of 2021. I graduated residency in June and then I had two months and then I went um, to California. So it was all very, everything was very fast paced. I actually think about this a lot because he was doing so well for 18 months for basically a year and a half. And then um, I kind of forgot about it a little bit. Like I think everybody was kind of, you know, status quo. And then I think back now, like, you know, would I have gone to California? Like, should I have gone if I had known that he would have had a recurrence in July, you know, and been apart for that whole year. But, you know, you can only work with what you know at that time. And I had to do fellowship and I had to, you know, sacrifice and go to another state, even though I didn't want to. Um, And that was another discussion. He thought about coming to California too. You know, when he was diagnosed, he's like, what do I do? Do I just quit my job, go travel? Like, you know, because you don't really know it's, it's a deadly incurable disease. And so people don't know, you know, the mean prognosis is 12 to 15 months. Um, even with clinical trials and treatments, you, you know, we were always so hopeful that he would be an extreme long-term survivor. And technically he was because he survived over two years. But, I, th- you know, I think we thought he might live until five years and then they'd have a new treatment and he would be able to get into that. And something of that nature. And when I look back now, I, I wish I could have been here that year if I had known. It's so crazy. So I think that one of the themes that we talk about on the show, well, we talk about grief a lot. I think the wake wellness is really about, for me, it was like how grief kind of ripped my life apart. Right. But in the ripping apart, um, all the things that I learned and then the repercussions from all that really, has taught me how to live my life now. So I think um, regret is a big thing that I think people in our station have to deal with. And that's a big grappling that happens with our grief, which is like, you can only know what you know, as you just said, which is, that's a very simple phrase, but it's extremely powerful for people listening. Like you can only know what you know, especially when you're given a medical diagnosis like this, like, and your hope is the only thing I think that keeps you 
making forward progress because you're hopeful, especially with young people like our husbands, like you always think that because they're energetic and they are doing all the right things that they might be that, that 1% or that rare case that, right. you know, overcomes these outcomes. Cause I, did you feel like so devastated by the research? Cause I knew when Carl was diagnosed, I was like, oh my gosh, this is terminal. Like people don't survive this. Right. So Ty was a lot more realistic than me. He, I guess I, and I think I've said this too, I was very much in denial, even though we're both physicians, we're both doctors, you know, when you're in medical school, you learn about glioblastoma and GBM and it's like one sentence and it says like, this is a death sentence, you know, and that was a couple of years, maybe five years ago when we were in medical school. And, you know, not much has changed in the last, I think, 70 plus years, they only have three FDA approved drugs. And so it still technically is. And, you know, we went to do a clinical trial in North Carolina at Duke, and they're one of the huge GBM centers, and they um, are just so optimistic and so hopeful. And they always said to us, that's really what you have to be, because if you think of it as a death sentence, then it will be. Um, and so I guess in that sense, that's what helped me along is that I was in denial and he was doing so well and had no deficits that I was like, oh, he's going to be, you know, that five percent that reaches five years or whatnot and that wasn't the case when he had the recurrence and it was act of of, of a rare cancer his recurrence was distant so usually 80 percent of gbm recurs in the same location um which would have been great if you do know that you're always going to have a recurrence because they could have operated on it but his was in a distant location it was inoperable and it really affected his motor and so that was very challenging for me his whole family my family everybody yeah We've had a few different podcast guests this month on talking about, well, another person that had um, brain cancer and or an inoperable lesion. I'm sorry, it wasn't cancer, so a non-cancerous lesion, but that did affect his speech. Um, actually, really emotional capacity was really what it, it was affecting his personality a lot. And so um, it's really challenging. Like, did, do you still chew through, like I do, like a lot of... Um, the decisions that you've made. I know we talked just a little bit about regrets of like making decisions differently. Had you have known where you would have gone? Like, I feel that way very much so. And I always think with medical, if you have medical knowledge, you do your best to stay informed, but it's also like, it can almost eat you alive because you're constantly trying to like find that thing that you just don't know about. Cause that's how medicine works. Sometimes there's just a lot, a lot out there that if you don't know, you could totally miss on it. And like, I was wondering how much of that plagues you a little bit to this day. Right. I mean, as I got second, third, fourth opinions at MSK, UCSF, all over MD Anderson. I researched all the time. You know, when I got back here, I think it was late August, early September, um, and he was doing okay at that point. You know, he was still really hopeful that his treatment was going to work. That's what they had told him. Like, you're going to go back to operating. You're going to be fine. Um, and he slowly progressed in. I think um, I was just very much obsessed in finding a clinical trial. I just couldn't really come to terms with that there wasn't anything that could help him or that could or that we couldn't save him. And to this day, I still think that I'm like, how could we not have saved him? I know, like, I know. And you know, it just it's so challenging when you get to clinical trial level because we were also in clinical phase one clinical trials and. I remember thinking like I'd read something about, so our variant, um, we had a few variants of insignificance that really wouldn't have a lot of treatment, but then like five years later, 
four years later, I think like it was last year, I read something that was like all this PDL positive treatments that they could do and all these, you know, just different things that they were able to do with the gene marker where we were just still such early days. Like Katruda had only been out for like mm, a couple of years by the time we had um, gotten to our recurrence. Anyway, it just, it really is interesting because you can really, it makes you sick to be like, oh my gosh, this treatment, I'm so thankful it's there for the people that need it now. But like we were the time, like, it's like, it's almost like a lost relationship when the timing isn't working where you're like, I just lost my whole life potentially because of timing and like, you know, like the timing and the advancement of like a treatment. It's so devastating when you think about that. Especially in cancers like GBM that have, that are so fast growing. I think they double, you know, their doubling size is so rapid. Um, you don't have time to wait for these clinical trials to go through phase one, two, three, 10 years, you know, you have 10, you have a mean diagnosis of like 10 months. You don't have 10 years to wait for that to go through. And that was like a big thing for me because there were two very promising things that I saw in, you know, on clinicaltrials.gov and through word of mouth and the GBM Facebook groups and social media that I really wanted to get him into. And being a physician, I was able to contact a lot of places, you know, doctor to doctor. And I, I, and I can't imagine if, if you're a lay person, you don't even understand what the clinical trials necessarily are saying, and you don't have that connection. Cause the way we even got into Duke was through one of his um, mentors at Yale when he did, where he did medical school and residency. And she was at UCSF and she got us in with um, our neuro-oncologist at Duke. Um, We're in the same. So it's very scary. You know, Dr. Maholtra was just on the last podcast and we were talking about like access. So access in medical care, medical care at this level, when you're in metastasis is, or, you know, advanced diseases in general is it's extremely frustrating, right? Like I got into MD Anderson through um, an angel investor who was in charge of their philanthropy to see the best doctor for GI. And like it, he had a five-year waiting list to even get on his books. And we, by the grace of God, got in there from a friend, but I was thinking like, man, all the things that that brought access to us, definitely ex- extended his life by several years. Um, right. Well, I would call and I'd be like, oh, this is Dr. Hendricks. I'm looking for this neurosurgeon or this neuro-oncologist at MD Anderson to talk about a patient. I never said like I was like a caregiver or it was a personal thing or it was my husband. I, you know, and so they always called me back like within a day. Awesome. And then I was like, oh, this is the story. This is what I need. Um, and so it was helpful in that sense, because as you know, going through all the clinical trials, getting second and third opinions, you have to send all your imaging. So you have to get it from one place. You have to upload it. They have need time to review. So all these processes take several weeks only to say like, you don't qualify for this. So one of the places wanted us to fly all the way to California. And I said, can you just tell us on the phone, you know, it's difficult at this time motor. um, So we can't really fly over there. Could you just tell us if he would qualify for anything rather than waste time and go on a trip and, and everything just to be told there's nothing, you know? And so that was another big part of it. But yeah, it's just, it was really, really hard. And then just getting denial after denial, like you don't qualify all the inclusion criteria are so specific, Mm -hmm. which was really frustrating. You basically had to be, you know, a model patient to qualify for a lot of these clinical trials. And, and like I've told you before, I think my biggest thing was for something that's deadly and incurable, like GBM, you need to have right to try or expanded access. And I, you know, as a physician got him 
expanded access to one of the experimental drugs that he didn't qualify through a clinical trial through the FDA and um, along with our local neuro-oncologist here. Um, and we tried that, but I think it would have been a huge delay if I didn't have the access that I do and being a physician and being a doctor and having all that knowledge. Um, yeah, I had the same team. I mean, I had the, I had a whole team of medical friends, professionals, family members, myself, like all of us sifting through the research. And I just, it's really important for me that we're sharing as many stories as we can about grief and what it looks like. Um, cancer is so prevalent. I think there's so many people, especially young people. One of the things I realized in going back when we were in recurrence was it, it when we started in 2014 to when it recurred in 2016 and that two-year gap, we used to, I remember we were the only people in the treatment suites like that were young. I remember thinking like, oh, when you see another young person, it's like you, your eyeballs popped up. And that second recurrence, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many more young people. Like it felt like there were young people all over the the chemo and, yes. and treatment areas. And I was like, damn, is it me? Or is MD Anderson was just like double timing with young people and and so I just think it's really important when we're speaking about chronic illnesses, cancer, which is so prevalent, and some of these unknown things. It's like, A, I want to know how we handle how you handled things emotionally. B, I wanted to, I do want to say this. One of the things that I've learned in the long track of this, which you're still, you know, chewing, I'm still chewing through, I'm still chewing through a lot of my choices too. And I, I think we might always. But one of the things I was thinking is like we did the best with the knowledge that we had and and staying positive and sort of in denial when you told me that in the early days of right after you lost him, I thought how brave that was of you. Because in fact, I, I did the same thing, which, which did avoid some of my own healing, right? My own grief processing is it had to happen way after he died because I had to, I had to be strong and be in that, I think, positive mental attitude role, which helps them. And it helps, but I always think back on that. Like it, it made me angry a little bit sometimes after Carl died that I, Felt like I was the only one who was sometimes speaking the the reality of where we were going, but I also think that um, staying positive. If now that I look back, I'm like, would there be any other way? Because we lived, you live more fully in that headset, in that mindset. Definitely, you know. I mean, to me, I was just like, there's no way that we can't save him or cure him, and that's why I was so. Just because I went in, most people go into medicine and you think, oh, I want to help people. That's why you go into medicine. And a lot of times you do, especially for surgical specialties, like you, they have a problem, you take them to surgery and they're better. So it's a very tangible effect. And I think seeing the medical oncology side or the oncology in general side, um, aside from surgery, you know, and that's, that's not always the case. And so that was really hard for me to understand and to accept. And I don't think I even accepted it. Even when he was on home hospice, I was like, you know, still trying to look at clinical trials. I was like, there's this other clinical trial I found. And, you know, I showed it to him. I talked to, I got a second, another opinion, you know, and I was always like, that's an N of one. He was so realistic, you know, and he was so, he was like, that has one patient that had benefited from that, that had a similar mutation. And we don't know that. And that was the other part, you know, you don't know that something that you're going to try isn't going to hurt you. And so that was the other side of it. Like a lot of these medications and infusions, they have side effects like, you know, bowel perforation or, you know, blood clot and different kinds of things like that. And so when I would go back and think, well, you know, if he would have just 
you know, continued on this course for another two weeks and added this other medicine and been, you know, aggressive and maybe I should have enforced that. Maybe things would have been different. And somebody's like, but he could have also gotten sick or had a, you know, bowel perforation with a Vastin or whatnot. And things could have gone very differently or, you know, even more, you know, terrible before. It's true. And honestly, Carl was so aggressive. I mean, I think he had a very fight spirit like you do, which is strong. And I I admire and love that. Like, I think he was, I used to call him the Phoenix. Like he would just like have these periods where he, the cancer was in his adrenals and like just in really, it, it took on a lot. It wasn't big, but it took on a lot of vascularity and like it had a big blood supply. And so I remember we were on clinical trial. I mean, he was fucking determined to keep living. And Sonia Maholcher really got our medicine in a managed way. And he was, he would go on clinical trial, come off, go on, come off. And his tumor ruptured. And so this is crazy. I don't know if I've talked about this. Yeah, Yeah, we were, he was determined. He was bleeding, almost bled to death. Um, He went to do the tricentennial dinner at Antoine's. um, And he and another chef were like the main course. And um, that kitchen had no air conditioning. So he was cooking post-clinical trial in a hundred degree kitchen and he, his tumor ruptured the next day and he almost bled to death. So he was internally bleeding from the tumor and they couldn't stop it. And he had already maxed out on radiation. And we, um, we did end up doing some palliative radiation, but that was like, they were like, this radiation will perforate potentially. Like most likely you'll die from this radiation. Do you want to do it? And of course he was like, let's do it. And I'm like, you know, I'm always sitting there like, oh, these decisions that we're oh weighing out are so heavy, which I know, you know, and actually the radiation did work. Um, he was given a month to live. My son was the one who captured him when he was bleeding. Uh, he was throwing up blood all over our house and the fire department. I was actually in New York on a work trip, which he like, I didn't want to go. And he was like, you got to go. You got to keep living. And so I got stuck in a storm, couldn't fly home as he was literally rupturing and coding and getting infusion after infusion after infusion to try to like re, you know, supply the blood that he was losing and when I got there, um, they gave him one more unit of blood and I don't know what happened, but it just, it stopped bleeding. And then he did radiation and it, it, it helped, oh it held him for a whole nother year. Yeah. But I remember thinking oh like, these are the things, these are the choices that we make to like, everything it could kill or save. And it's like, they sit right next to each other. It's sort of how you probably feel right now. This is a weird jump too, but I always feel like my pain and my love sit right next to each other and they are together all the time and they, you can't separate the right. two out, right? Like the pain will always be there, but the love, the love has gotten, you know, it gets stronger. Um, the pain seems to be less suffocating or something. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but maybe you feel the same. I know. You mean because the baby? Well, well tell me about your yeah. beautiful. Okay. So I, I got introduced by Vera because we are so blessed that we have the best therapist in the planet and, and what she did yes. for you to meet me, she did for me to meet what I always laugh and call my widow mentor, Chrislyn Oakwin. And Chrislyn was about, um, a year ahead of me a little bit, same cancer journey, um, a single mom. She was very, you guys need to meet cause she was pregnant with Winston while yeah. her husband was, um, going through treatment and, and he passed away probably, I think three or four months after Winston died. Not, not very long. I mean, that time might be wrong, but it wasn't very long anyway, but oh we gosh. met in the same way where like she facilitates this meeting where you have, you get to speak to someone who's kind of walked in your shoes, but not totally, but kind of enough. And you get to say like, Hey, how are you? Okay. <laughs> it's sort of like, you need someone to be like, 
you're not crazy. Everything's you're going to be okay. And you were pregnant with your angel who is, I know. how old is she now? She's almost six months old, which is like bittersweet because I was six months pregnant when Ty passed away. So every time she gets older, I think, oh, it's longer since I've seen him, you know? So yeah. it that means, you know, she's turning six months. And so it's been nine months since he passed away, which is crazy to me. I'm just still really in shock, I think, because I've just been go, go, go. Like I said, I only had six weeks of maternity leave. And so like learning motherhood and doing everything, you know, I had a lot of help, thankfully, from his family, my family, and, you know, nannies and everybody. I had a lot of help, um, but just learning everything new and then having to go back to work after six weeks, which is so crazy to me. It's so short. Um, I think actually healthcare professionals have the worst maternity leave. You know, I've heard in Finland, it's like three years, fully paid. Google, Amazon have like fully paid three months at least. And we only have six weeks. And a lot of times it's unpaid, essentially. Yeah. and so that was an interesting experience. And going back to work, I went right back to surgery and I had to find the lactation room in the hospital. I was carrying 12 bags. I was just like, how am I going to do this? You know, and so it was just all, all these things at once. And it was really hard. Um, but she is just such a miracle. Ty named her. So in September, it was, so it was like maybe a couple of months after his recurrence and he was still doing okay. Um, I was like, oh, you know, trying to make videos and different things because that's what everybody says. I just didn't know what was going to happen, you know. And so I was making videos and he, we were like talking about names and he named her and I have a video. I think I showed it to you, but he was like, yeah, it's Mila Taylor Tuggle. And so her middle name's after her grandmother Tuggle, who is very strong and independent. And then Mila, he just heard and he liked, um, and it means actually miracle, um, and dear one and gracious. And so it's just the perfect name for her. And she's just so sweet and so smart and so strong. And every day I'm just amazed. And she's just such a miracle baby for me and for my whole family and and Ty's whole family. Um, And every time I look at her, I just see him because she just reminds me so much of him, her faces, her mannerisms. And I just, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's so sad and I think, you know, I wish he could see her. And I remember one of his, I don't want to say final wishes, but one of the things he said to me, he was, you know, he was trying one chemo after the other. One didn't work. We switched to another one, you know, kind of back and forth. And I remember he said, you know, I just want to, Oh, so this was what it was. He, his birthday was October 25th. And so he turned 40. And so he was like, I made it to 40. And then I remember he's like, now the countdown is, you know, for the baby, she's was her due date was March 26th. She was born March 30th. He's like, I just have to make it to the baby's birth so I can, you know, see her and hold her and just tell her how much I love her. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy God, it made, you know, made me so sad because cancer is like, you know, the great equalizer, just like COVID. It doesn't really care. Right. Um, sure doesn't give a shit about your life, right? It's just going to keep trying to spread and grow and yeah get more vascular right and and in the end it just dies i mean it tries to kill it just kills people and then it just dies and so to me that's i mean yeah that's the other side of the coin i'm always amazed like how we don't have a cure for cancer yet how we could go to you know the moon and we can we have all this ai and all this technology and all you know, we're so smart as human beings and we've created so many things like flying cars, you know, eventually and things like that. How do we not have a cure for cancer? 
Um, and I'm fortunate in that I do breast surgery and breast surgical oncology, which is, you know, one of the most common types of cancer. There's a lot of cancer funding that goes towards it. Um, unlike glioblastoma and GBM, since it's so rare and only 5% of the population is affected, only 2% of the national budget goes towards that cancer research. But for, for me with breast cancer, there's so many advancements. There's so much funding that goes into the research. So a lot of our patients have such great prognoses. We always tell patients your breast cancer is not what's going to kill you for the most part, you know, it's usually the secondary, but how are you? I was thinking about this, you know, so my current husband, David lost his wife to a brain aneurysm and used to give a lot of like cancer diagnoses every day as an interventional radiologist. And so he did a lot of procedures that would be like, oh, you have a metastasis and confirm it. And it was really challenging. He actually ended up changing and doing like a more specialized facet of what he does because he was really struggling with delivering hard news to people. And I think you're in reconstruction. So that's like such a great place to be because you're actually really get to fix the problem. But is it still really challenging to work inside the area that completely ripped apart your life? Or do you find it to be healing? Yes, definitely. I find it, I definitely find it to be healing. One of um, my partners, she has been through a lot in her life. She's a bit older. um, So she's gone. I think she's, you know, she's been practicing for 30 or 40 years. So she's been through a lot. And she, when this was all kind of when I got the phone call from the local medical oncologist that he thought, you know, Ty would only had like a couple of weeks to live. And, um, he mentioned home hospice. Uh, I was basically in shock, like I said, cause I was in denial, but, um, I had called my employers and told them, you know, that this was going on and I took a leave of absence and I had only started working maybe a couple of months before. So my employer was saying, um, how, when things have happened in her life that she couldn't control, she always found solace in going back and working and our profession and helping other people and helping patients. And I really took that to heart because I remember after his memorial service, he had two, he had a big one at home in Memphis. Um, there were like 300 people. And then we had another smaller one here for all his hospital colleagues, um, actually at Audubon Park, which is one of his favorite places um, and where we went on our first date. But um, so I went back to work uh, and it was hard, but I think it was very healing um, seeing patients, be, being able to help them, knowing that breast cancer has a you know, varied and widely much better prognosis than glioblastoma. Um, and actually, I remember one of the first patients I saw when I came back, because I was pregnant, I was six months pregnant, um, or actually I probably was like closer to seven or eight months pregnant when I went back. And she was talking about the baby and she was so excited first child. And she was like, is your husband so excited? And I said, yes. And she was like, Oh, what does he do? And you know, I was like, Oh, he's a hand surgeon. I just couldn't, she was like 90 or 85. And I just didn't have the heart to be like, Oh, he passed away, you know? And so I just, and maybe it was also for my own healing, you know, shock state that I just talked about him in the present tense, but Um, And then fast forward to recently, I had a patient, um, I think last week, uh, and she came in, she was a new diagnosis, and she has, I think, four children. um, And she was uh, talking about, you know, we always ask family history or whatnot. And she was saying how her husband passed away, um, I think, at the age of 45 from glioblastoma. 
and she's in her seventies now. And I, and so I shared with her cause she, they were asking about the baby and how many kids and, you know, and then Ty came up and I said, actually he passed away, um, December 29th. And he also had glioblastoma and he was 40. So it was very similar in age. And so we connected on that and we talked about that for a long time. I think I was in there for an over an hour. Um, and she told me actually, and she had four, four dogs. And, um, she told me that the mm. second year is the hardest. She's like, not to scare you. Um, cause I told her I was still kind of in the shock state. She said the second year is the hardest, um, that she thought and she felt the second year was the hardest. So she said, just be prepared. Um, and I said, uh, thank you. And I said, I have a lot of support. Luckily, I feel very lucky. I have a, you know, a ton of support. Um, and I was kind of like, I've always been that type A person, like right after everything happened, I, I had two grief counselors. One was the one was um, the one that we mutually shared. And I had another one that somebody had recommended to me. I did all the, you know, national brain tumor support groups. I am still part of all the GBM, you know, social media groups. We did a big fundraiser in May for brain cancer awareness. Um, I still give advice to people that reach out to me that are, you know, a judge from New York just found my contact through actually one of my, um, former classmates at NYU in college, uh, messaged me after she saw, um, Ty's obituary online. And she said, my best friend's brother just got diagnosed and he's in his mid late thirties. And is it okay if their family reaches out to you? So I'm still very much involved in the GBM community. And I, I found, you know, we're kind of, we kind of have selection bias, I guess, because I've met so many other young widows, which to me is a, is a blessing because you can connect with other people, but it's also so sad that there's so many of us, but, um, uh, I've, I've met a lot of other people that have kind of guided me through this process. Um, and, and half of them aren't involved in whatever caused the death of their, you know, young spouse. And the other half is very much still involved. So it's just really interesting. You know, some people it's too hard to really continue the GBM research and keep up on everything and do fundraising. And the other half, you know, that's kind of how they heal. Um, there's a really big yeah. uh, community of young people that are, you know, at the forefront of GBM research and funding, um, and they're all like, I think in their twenties and they have ton, like thousands of followers on social media and they raise like $2 million. Um, and they have a podcast too. And I just think it's amazing. And a lot of them say, this is how I heal by, you know, continuing to be involved in this as much as it hurts. You know, this is how I keep my loved one's memory alive. This is how I keep fighting, you know, for what I believe in. And that's kind of my personality. I think once everything settles down with the baby and, you know, my job, I definitely want to start like some kind of social media for GBM um, and kind of what I went through and kind of an advice that I have to give other people. Cause I still do that on the side. It's just, I'd like to reach a bigger you know, community cause it's really hard. No, you're right. And I think <clears throat> I've met actually a bunch of widows and, and some that have come on the podcast, Whitney Allen, that's on, been on here. She's a, she's a grief counselor. Like, um, she does like life coaching for, for widows. And essentially I think all of us, I think the, the walk is so intense to illness, to death that, and, and even sudden death too. Right. I think that, I think definitely medical, 
crisis to death is a unique subspecialty of widows where I think we just, it's so personal. It's so lonely. There's so many things that can go wrong that, yeah, you, you do become sort of like grandma Moses of, 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 of like your people to be like, come to me, let me tell you what I know. And it is like this passed on lineage which is really cool. And I, yeah, I'm doing that all the time. People are always contacting me about cancer, especially GI and like trying to get in with these certain doctors. And what did you do when you did this? And, and then even widows just like, how do you heal? Right? Like it's so oh, hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. And you feel very yeah. alone. I tried to do right? everything. Cause I was just like, Oh, I'm going to go to the grief council, you know? And I, I, and it's like you said, everybody's process is different. Cause I saw how other people grieved and I was like, you know, it seemed to me like they were okay. And I was such a mess. And I was just like, you know, I went to the grief counselors, um, once a week and I did all these kinds of things for it because I just didn't know how to deal with it. I talked to a lot of other widows. Actually, one would be good to come on your show. I should connect you. Um, but his wife passed away from GBM even younger than Ty, like at 30s, mid 30s. Um, and he actually switched jobs recently and went back to school to become a grief counselor. He did something completely different. Oh, that's amazing. And he has two little kids too. I've I met so it. many people. Yeah, I should introduce well, you that's guys. A, yeah, that's you actually like show. the ribbon. Of, um, I would love that. Yeah. I think that's like the ribbon of connection. Though, I know. Right? Like of... when you're going through something. That's right. I mean, it's, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think it's when you're in the scenarios that we go through, like you reach out for anyone who can understand what you're going through to just validate that, like, you're okay and you're going to be okay. You said it sort of just need someone to say like, oh yeah, that's, you're going to be okay. Or yeah, that's so hard. I remember going through that. This is what I did to like rectify that situation or try to get through that difficult time. And I think, it's, it I opens know. these doors of all these beautiful people, right? Like there's just so many amazing people and the survival stories are so strong that it it's a fellowship for sure. And I think your give back actually to G, GBM research and brain, brain cancer research in general, I think is really, really powerful. Um, it was one of the first things we talked about, which you were really impassioned by that. And I, I'm obsessed with that. Like, I feel like this is my give back and it's a little different than GI cancer per se, or the I think I still struggle to get back into the hospital setting. Like it's, I spent so much of my life there and it, it felt a little bit like that took me away from the kind of mom I wanted to be, the kind of wife I wanted to be. Like, I felt like we were a little bit robbed because of all the treatments we were for so long going to and from places. And it just kind of tore my family life a little bit apart. Um, but I do think that the, that give back is, it is a way to like continue the love. And um, yep. it's really cool to hear what you're doing. And I just think it's, and so it really begins actually with our your daughter, you know, like I was thinking when you were pregnant, you were so scared. And I was like, oh my gosh, Farrah, listen, like, I know you don't know yet. Cause you're a first time mom and, and that baby's coming, you know, whether you want her, you know, you're ready for her really. Right. Like you were scared and grieving and worried that you weren't gonna be able to connect with the baby or whatever. And I'm, I was thinking to myself, like my kids literally, I am only alive because right. of them. Like, because without them, I always think about survivors um, who don't have family support. Definitely. I don't know. It's no, dark. definitely. I, and I have met another um, GBM widow, and she doesn't have good support from her uh, husband's family or her in-laws, her family um, either, and they no kids. I've actually, I actually know two young. One is an older lady and one's a younger lady. But, yeah, it is really hard. 
Um, and I think, I do honestly think that Mira, Bila is a miracle baby and she really saved me in a lot of ways. And, and it's hard because I wish he was here to see her and all, like all her little milestones and she's just the sweetest. And it breaks my heart that, you know, she won't physically get to see her dad, but um, she sees him in pictures and videos. And I tell her all about him. Anytime I can, you know, input him into a story to tell her about him, I do. And, you know, hit and Ty's family is so wonderful and they always, you know, do the same. And so I think she'll know him, you know, in a different way. Um, but I, I always say when she grows up, she's going to cure cancer. She's going to know what her dad went through and she's going to become, you know, this like super big neuro-oncologist somewhere, or, you know, researcher and, you know, find a cure for cancer. Hope. It's really powerful. My kids are 13 and 10 and um, my youngest, you know, was breastfeeding when Carl was diagnosed. So most of her life, she only knew her dad ill and honestly, like the type when you're long-term memories are laid, you know, she, he was really in the hardest part of his fight. And so it's really interesting now that I'm remarried and David really is the father figure, honestly, that's raising her and being the dad in her life that, that she is learning about what a dad is in physicality, but she always tells David and it's precious, like, and, and sort of hard, I think sometimes for him to swallow. Cause he's like, I'll never be like, I'll never be able to live up to this, like, perfect energy of her dad, which is, it's kind of true. It's like, you know, he's just always going to be here. And he's, he's like, I'm the one who has to like discipline her right. and raise her. And that he like has these like very hard lines that he has to draw for her where her dad was like, I mean, he's like this, you know, superhero in her mind and may always be right. that way. But it, it's, it's, she's always like, you know, David, you're not my, you're not my biological oh, dad, no. you know? And she's always like, you know, she, so she's, she, without very much experience with her father, still has, a you know, this understanding and this deep depth of who he is. And, and I will tell you this much, even without, like, they didn't get the kind of relationship that her brother did. They spent a lot of time together. Um, she's so much like her dad. Like, you'll see, like, she has his hands. She has his long fingers. Like, my son, um, when Carl used to think he would twirl his hair and, like, this is really weird, right? Like this is, this is mannerisms. I'm like, are mannerisms something that we literally inherit? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it should be, but maybe it is. And he, you know, will curl his hair every time he's thinking just like his dad or make these like furrowed brows that just exactly mirror, you know, and you just see the gene pool right there in front of you. And you're like, in some ways it's so powerful because I'm like, they do live on. And the only philanthropy that we are able to truly give back to in this kind of a powerful way is, is these babies, because this is their blood. Yeah. Like this is their gene pool. And it's pretty powerful. Definitely. And it's, it's quite so a blessing funny really where I'm like, you. Yeah, go ahead. I know, I it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because when she was a little, so Ty's maternal grandfather was a neurosurgeon, which is ironic because he had GBM and he has neurosurgeons in his family. Oh, but yeah. his um, grandpappy always did the middle finger like in any photo. And so Ty used to do that in all the photos. <laughs> like even his little sister Mary's wedding, we have a photo of him, you know, flipping the bird. And so when she was just born, she would always have her middle finger up. Like, and I'm sure it was just an involuntary <laughs> thing. But I was like, oh my God, 
Ty, is that you? Or, you know, like, and I just thought it was so funny she did that because she took after her dad. And I think I have a little picture when she's six weeks old with her middle finger up. I'm like, oh my goodness. He'd be so proud. No, it's so true. <laughs> and forever you'll see that, you know, and it's cool. Like the older they get and the more their mind develops and the more they're, they get to, you know, have their own opinions and thinking, you're just going to, you'll see more and more and more of it. And I just, I think it's really awesome. Like you're on the, you're on the early stages of grief and you're combating so much. And I think that you're doing it, um, whatever, this doesn't even mean anything, but you're doing it well. Does that mean you mean a thing? (laughs) By well, in my opinion, that means like honest. Yeah. You're being so honest about where you are and what you're experiencing. And I think Um, I just wanted to highlight and just say that like, you're doing an awesome job and I hope the world gets to hear like what a badass you are and there's, you know, needs to hear your story more and maybe more GBM research will come out of this, but more importantly, like how motherhood and this beautiful child within that you carried in this very challenging time has been born to be the representative of the love of your life and saving your life. It's really a beautiful story about the continuity of love, despite fucking terrible stuff that happens even when you don't want it to. So. It's terrible. Yeah. I know, is it, well, tell us a little bit. So I wanted you to talk about the GBM research and kind of like, where do you feel that the cancer um, industry is and medical industry is falling short? Because I know you're really impassioned by this yeah. and I want to, I want to hear um, what you know, where you, where you've come with all in this. In another way it comes full circle. Cause I was a political science major in college. Um, and I actually transitioned into medicine um, of course my senior year. Um, but I always kind of intertwined political science back into my profession and job that I do now, especially when I was at Georgetown, I did a lot of lobbying cause we were right in DC. Um, but yeah, a lot of what I am very interested in terms of GBM is like on the political side of it and kind of the FDA and, and how there's a lot of stuff that's coming out. Like two of the things that I was really interested in having, Ty try um, one was a vaccine that you didn't need new tissue, which was great for us because he was his new recurrence was inoperable, so we couldn't get new tissue to see what the gene mutations were. Um, and they, you know, when I had reached out to them, they were all um, they said it's not about the money and getting it outside of expanded access. They said it was a supply chain shortage, and they went through three different pharmacies, you know, to make their vaccine, and they only have a supply enough for the people that are participating in their clinical trial. And um, just to show you how far I went, my dad is an organic chemist. He's retired now, but he is originally from Taiwan, and he's an organic chemist. And I you know, asked him because I saw one of the three pharmaceutical companies was in Shanghai. And I said, do you know any, you know, colleagues over in China still? And he did. And he reached out to a bunch of people to see like, you know, how we could get this vaccine. And I was, you know, it didn't pan out in the end, but I was just like, how can you say it's a supply chain shortage? People are dying and your, you know, treatment could potentially save them. And, you know, it wasn't about cost you know, at that point. So that was, you know, that just blew my mind. And then the other thing that I thought was really promising that they're, you know, doing a lot of is ultrasound sonodynamic therapy. So they're using ultrasound waves to kind of cause the cancer cells to apoptose or, you know, implode or explode technically. And um, it's minimally invasive. There's no, you don't have to undergo surgery or anything like that. They use like an MRI machine to guide the ultrasound waves and they give you a little dye either to drink or put it through an IV and it collects in the GBM cells in the brain 
and then the ultrasound waves cause those cancer cells to basically self-destruct and that's how it you know it cures or kills it or treats the GBM wow. and so those three okay two so things that that secondary one, can I ask you if you, in your research, is it, why is there not more access to that scene? That seems like that would be a really the ultrasound um, one? easy yeah. thing to give a, yeah. Okay. So it, this kind of shit yeah. pisses me off and it's, I'm just going to say it, it was, because in my own personal journey, I had a same thing where you're like, you find out these very easy accessible treatment options that are like something you can do when you're really ill. This is not hard are not first line in treatment due to like the most idiocracy things. You're like, Hmm, why? Like, uh, blood, blood biopsies. I learned this when we went to Europe and did some things. This is a very simple thing. Anyone out there who is about to go on to chemotherapy. So in Europe, first line of treatment, if you get cancer, you can request a blood biopsy and then they will take obviously the different treatment options and do it like whatever, test it on your blood to see what, what responds with your chemistries. Right. Uh, in America, that is yes. a late stage, n- really not used, simple, very right. not even expensive, uh, like tool that I don't understand why we are not using that. And I and I I've heard, and this is just like conspiracy theory, but like that the the you know whatever pharmaceutical companies keep this at bay because if if we go that route, then we know like oh well these three chemotherapies or three treatment regimens are not going to work, and they just you know, we'll do the ones that work, but you already know, like when you're on chemotherapy, it destroys as much as it can help you. And so it really weakens the body and, and your ability to fight is diminished significantly with every treatment you have to choose to do. So it's, it's an infuriating because ultrasound therapy seems like that would be such an easy thing to do a trial on. The second thing that I thought was really promising for GBM was this non-invasive MRI guided ultrasound technology Um, And we had, when Ty was first diagnosed with his recurrence in July, a friend of a friend had connected us with the CEO of one of these two companies. There's two big companies that are um, working on this. And we had talked to him and he was like, yeah, I think he'll qualify, but let me see. And then, you know, he came back to us after what seemed like a forever wait, but it was like five days. And he was like, oh, he doesn't qualify. I'm sorry. And I actually went on their website and I saw... And it said something like, oh, basically, if you have a life-threatening illness, with which GBM in and of itself is, um, they had these like exceptions. Um, and you could basically access it through like expanded access or right to try outside of a clinical trial that was ongoing that he didn't qualify for because of the location of his um, recurrence. And so I said, well, what about this line in your, you know, policy? And he said, oh, well, that's what took so long because I was trying to see how we could, you know, include him in our trial. And he's like, but I asked, you know, all the heads of the company and blah, blah, blah. And he can't do it basically. And so we're like, okay. And this was before we realized that the first treatment for the recurrence wasn't, wasn't working. And so we're like, okay, we're going to try something else. Um, we were even going to go to Germany to do a vaccine trial over there. Um, but that didn't work out. Um, and so we kept coming back to this ultrasound company, um, and basically essentially begging them. I was like, I am six months pregnant. He is not doing well. He is very sick, you know, why can't we try this? This is non-invasive. This can only help him and this can't hurt him. Cause I was like, are you, why yeah. won't you let us try? I know this isn't the exact location. I was like, 
Is it money? Is it that this causes swelling and you think this can hurt him and cause swelling in the brain and, you know, he can herniate. He's like, no, it doesn't cause swelling. It's non-invasive, you know, oh, it's really promising. Like all these like good things. And I was like, well, why won't you let us try? And we basically wrote him a, a huge long letter begging, like, you know, sending him pictures of the baby at my anatomy scan, like all sorts of things. And he's just like, we can't know. And I said, He's, and, and all these companies, actually, a lot of them defer to the FDA and they say, we are so regulated by the FDA. We're scared of the FDA. And when you go and talk to the FDA, they're like, they approve 99.99% of patient requests for expanded access. So I don't know where the conflict is, if the manufacturers right. and these companies are lying, if the FDA, you know, because to me, there's something that's going on and I just don't know if it's money or if they're so worried that if it doesn't we even said we would sign non-disclosures like right you know because I think they get worried when you start a clinical trial or start research if this fails this is the end of this like million dollar company that we tried to you know promote because it's always in the end I think a lot about business and money and finances in the background they want to create especially with neurosurgery and in you know like biotechnology and all these things money is a factor. It's a huge it's factor. And I, you can feel it on the, on the ground level when you're in a phase one clinical trial and you're a young mom trying to fight for your spouse, like, or whatever, a caregiver in general. And I just, I think it's really powerful what you're talking about. Um, it's getting me a little choked up. Just, I want to say like, I see you, I see how hard you fought for him. I see you. Uh, great job. I know that I never feel like I did enough, even though you do work your ass off. And those people that are the barriers to the something that could save your person, it's incredibly it's challenging, right? It's inc- yeah. and, and it's like a tiger mom. Like now you're now you're yeah. a mom. You know, you're like, no one will hurt my baby. Like it's the same kind of ferocity where you're like, get the fuck out of my way. If that is the thing that's standing between life or death, why aren't you helping me? Isn't your job your job is literally to help people, right? Um, and I got so upset and I was like you know and I think they they use the FDA as a scapegoat or whatnot because I was like oh if that's the case I'll, I I can talk to the FDA I can you know do all these things you know I'm medical and I did and the FDA is like yeah we're all about it we're ready and then when I went back to the company you know they're like oh you know blah 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 and I was like if you're so scared of the FDA I was like maybe we could you know raise public awareness about this or do a petition and he and I remember his exact words were like, that's a bit aggressive. And I wanted to say, GBM is aggressive. It's an incurable, deadly cancer. I, you know, it was just the wording that he used. And it's just, and I saw oh, this. There's a lot of patriarchy, right? Like, I don't know if you experience this, but I, they do not like when you do your research and come into clinical trials. So it's a hair of like this God complex, or at least that's how I felt like. So one of our trials was like headed by, um, I need to be careful what I'm saying here, but like, uh, let's just say like someone who was very high up in the, in um, Nobel Peace Prize winning st- wow. uh, research that had really advanced cancer. And I'm not going to say which, which advancement it was, because I probably get myself in legal trouble. But at that level, when I would come being like, why can't we do this blood biopsy? Why are you not letting me, why can we not qualify for this trial? Like we were young and pre- I mean, pretty healthy, meaning we didn't have a lot of issues that, that blocked us, but you, you would get declined for all these things. And 
whenever you brought that kind of a game energy questioning their research, it did feel like you got a lot of kickback and like, who do you think you are? A, like doing your research enough to know what we're doing and be right. questioning us in any sort of way. It was a really weird where I did feel like the power and money hierarchy really felt real to me. And I just, I wanted to tell you it's, it is crazy for those of you guys fighting out there with clinical one trials, clinical two phase trials, like fucking keep being loud and proud and, and, and actually use your Facebook groups and use your voice and use your power to make change. Cause I think that's the only way that things get, get done. And it is being ran by money. And I'm not sure why people get certain people get certain things and certain people cannot qualify. It's very, very infuriating. I, I even asked him, I said, if this was your mom or your dad or your family member, would they not qualify because of location for all these same reasons you're saying we don't. And they said, yeah, they said, actually, they had a family member of one of the people on their board that needed access to it that had GBM and they said no to them. And I don't know if that's true or not, but they did say that. Um, and I just think that was the whole point of right to try that you have these deadly cancers and you need to be able to access experimental drugs or technology in real time, not in 10 years, not even, not even like two years. It's like, it's crazy to me that they, that we have these treatments that are very promising and day in and day out. I see people dying, you know, people posting on the GBM Facebook group, add me to the widows group. You know, my husband, or my wife just passed away, young people, not, you know, the median age is like 62, but there's so many young people and, and it just doesn't seem as rare as, as it's, you know, announced to be. And I'm like, and I see all these people talking on these Facebook groups. I I talked to a lady whose husband's um, 44 and they have three little kids and he's in his third year, which is amazing. And he, and she is getting denial after denial, um, because of the location, it's the same location that Ty had in the cerebellum. And she reached out to the same ultrasound company and the CEO said the same thing. She wrote a whole long email, all this stuff. And he was like, oh, sorry, doesn't qualify. Good luck. Exclamation mark. And it was like, yeah, you know, what kind of response is that? You know, you're a neurosurgeon and that person is actually in the medical field too. He's not just the CEO. He's also like a practicing physician. Right. You're like, we, we took the Hippocratic oath to help, right? We took this oath to help and heal those that we can. It's super interesting when it's a physician in that. I also think though, like, like all specialties in medicine, when you're in, in trauma and grief, like constant pressure, because like everybody's in this time, it's a pressure of like a time scale where you're like, hurry, 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 because you're fighting against the clock, right? Like time is running out and you just have trying so hard to get resources to help you extend life. And I wonder like they must just, it's like when you work in the ICU and you see a lot or ER and you see a lot of bad things, you're like on to the next thing on to the, you have to like, you don't have time to process your, your grief in that. And I, I'm not giving any excuses, but I think it was cool. Dr. Maholcher that was on our last episode was, talking about doing a, um, a death panel where she's meeting with professionals in the medical field that are seeing hard death and how we're going to give space to grieve this. Yeah. It's called death ex- cafe. Is that UMC? Yeah. Oh yeah. She it's started that. Yes. Yeah. Actually it's funny because when I, I had a lactation consultant come one time when the baby was born and you know, she obviously knew about Ty and what was going on. 
Um, Cause I told her and she mentioned the death cafe at UMC and she was like, have you ever been? I was like, no, I heard about it when I was in residency, but I never went. And she's like, actually it's wonderful. And she went, she said, it's not just, you know, anybody can go to it. And she said it was so good. It was better than any grief counselor she's been to or anything. And she like, was just I don't know why she went or what the circumstances were, but she just was promoting it. And she said it was so great. So, um, well, I for for what it sounded like, I thought it was maybe only medical professionals. But you know what? She's Everybody the- looking up, I'm gonna put this in the show notes and figure out what this death cafe is because it sounds amazing. And honestly, like we widows and we caregivers really need all the resources we can get. And like one of the cool things too at at Oshner, um, Elizabeth LaPere is constantly working for integrating um, the family experience. I used to sit and give a lot of my opinions about like what could be better about the cancer journey from start to finish as a family, as a, from a patient's perspective. Um, And, and there's lots of things you can do to give back in that way, which is really cool. Like if you have a negative experience or you see a missing link, like sometimes in, in palliation and in pain, I always felt like we had to go outside the hospital system or cancer system to get what we needed in order to be, um, reduce our symptoms. I'm not sure if you felt that way. And so when I went back, I was like, you know, we really shouldn't, we shouldn't have to go to hospice to get the level of care. Like we need more palliation. And and Ashner at the time, like Sonia had left Ashner to go open UMC. And now there's a whole bunch of people at at Ashner and they worked really hard and they, they really heard. So just remember, like one of the things I think that you're on this show about is that your voice is powerful. It's really powerful. And like, what you're saying matters. And, and I actually think the medical community needs to hear from not just a physician of your, you know, with your credentialing, but you are a human and this is a human experience and you've been through a major loss and like what it feels like to be on a personal level. is really important. And I, I, I think it's awesome that you get to bring that to your patients every day because they're very lucky to have someone with your humanism coming to the table to be their surgeon. You know, I would Definitely. only want someone with your experience level to do that. It's really awesome. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything else you want to like tell the world about um, anything in relation to your story? Gosh, there's so much. Um... Well, tell me, tell me your, your most, I guess the glimmer. I'm like, I'm one of the things we talk about, like your wake up moment for me is really, you've clearly talked about that. Your love with Ty, your pregnancy, your baby, but glimmer is like this, you know, this new terminology where like all this trauma, all this grief has happened to you. Like, what is what is the the light that you've seen from it? Like, what is the thing that you're holding on to right now? Obviously, besides your miracle baby. I mean, she's really the big part, and just like my you know partner said, just our profession and being able to help patients and you know connect with them and I, like that patient I had the other day whose husband thirty years prior had GBM and died at forty five, you know, and I told her the same story, and she was an inspiration because. She's here, you know, now in her seventies, they were high school sweethearts. And I see that she's made it and she's raised four daughters. Um, And so I think it's really just being in healthcare field as, as many issues as the healthcare field has being able to help people still have that, you know, physician patient relationship really helps me day in and day out. I think, you know, being, Ty always said he, when he was first diagnosed, he, he was a very private person. He said, I don't, I never, I don't want to be the GBM spokesperson. So, you know, for a lot of it, I didn't really, you know, talk to my friends. I didn't really talk about it that much because also he was doing so well, but also he was just very private and very, you know, realistic. Um, and he thought he was going to get better. So he didn't really want, you know, 
it to be talked about. And so I think now, and I'm very much an opposite kind of person, you know, I wanted to start a petition so we could get access to the ultrasound technology, you know, when he was sick. And so even now I want to start, you know, either an Instagram or kind of some social media platform. I've even thought of a name called Doc GBM. So trademark, trademarking it now, um, as trademark a it. <laughs> like as a doctor, um, who's not a neuro-oncologist or a neurosurgeon, or I don't treat GBM, but just from my own medical perspective, navigating the system and how hard it is and how, you know, inefficient it is. And there's a lot of things that are promising that are coming out. They're just not coming out fast enough and they're just not as expansive and they're not being extrapolated to the general population that needs them in real time. So I hope to, you know, continue talking about GBM and continue following the research and hopefully, you know, move towards a cure or a treatment um, that can elongate people's lives and not have other families be affected like it has ours. I mean, this is like, you know, it seems like a plot in a really terrible movie that, you know, all this happened that, you know, you meet, you're, you're, you have the love of your life, you, you know, he passes away when you're pregnant, you raise your child and, you know, she doesn't get to see him, you know, and all this stuff. And I think it's actually, it seems like a movie, but it's actually real life. And unfortunately it's the lives of a lot of people and probably a lot of people that listen to the podcast and this show and, and hopefully they can find their voice and, and, you know, whether that's through social media or fundraising or whatnot and continue their loved one's legacy. Um, That's right. Which another was, show, I'm, right. I'm, I'm starting an annual hand lectureship for him at um, <gasps> at UMC in LSU. So during his birthday um, month, which is October, I'm going to do a fundraiser for that every year. And then in May, it's my birthday and May is Brain Cancer Awareness Month. So like for as long as I live, I'm going to do a fundraiser for GBM. Okay. Well, you let us know how Week yeah. Wellness can support you. I think that you're amazing. Um, you're such an ambassador for young widows. And, you know, one of the things that is a simple, it's not, is it's not, I mean, so you can go big and do all these amazing philanthropies, which you're doing, but remember like some advice that I would think even I have to tell myself is I just have to be present to the life that is within me every minute of every day. And it can be the simplest things like being a mom and being a good mom, like being a mom that really sees and hears and listens. And we, you know, that that's just struggle. I struggle with that. But I really do take seriously the life that I have inside of me because I know that it can be taken like that and and watching my person die. Um, it's a rebirth to live this very life that we're in. And I am just so grateful for you for your time. And I cannot wait to see how you kick cancer's ass because it needs to have its ass kicked hard and by a strong, powerful female voice. And um, the New Orleans community is, and, and, you know, North Shore community is very lucky to have you. So if you are seeking a uh, surgical oncologist for your breast reconstruction, look for Vera. She will have all of her contact information. Um, where I want to get the information, if you can send it to me, of your philanthropies so that we can get some money and, towards research for GBM and both um, that and brain research brain cancer research, because it's very important. And it's, it's a hard fight. Um, and from another cancer wife, you know, it's important that we keep, keep pushing for research to help yes. people. So uh, thank you so much. And I hope that you go enjoy your weekend with your angel miracle baby Mila. Yes. Thank you so much. for keep sending, me. keep sending pictures. You need to um, send me a couple pictures. I'm going to put them on with the show notes so everybody can see your miracle baby. Okay. I will. And her chunky thighs. <laughs> oh.
Yes, I just want to see her sweet. She has like a little faux hawk. It's so beautiful. And yes. sweet little thigh. She's like a little beautiful Gerber baby. She looks just like you in Thai combo. So thank you so much for your time. And everyone go find Vera. She is in the New Orleans region and she is making waves in the cancer world. And we're going to see big things from her. So thank you so much. Thank I'm going to hit you. end recording. You have a beautiful day. Thank you. This has been the Wake the F Up podcast with Alex and Jamie, a podcast about normalizing and overcoming challenges like grief and fear. Be sure to check out our other episodes where our community of experts share tools and ideas to help you wake to the life inside of you. If you enjoyed this episode of Wake the F Up, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And join the Wake community by downloading our app. Just search for Wake Wellness in the Apple or Android app store. And follow us on Instagram at The Wake Wellness. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.